0: This is the Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, Adrian Lackey, the ultimate insider, on the capturing of SARS. When future historians chronicle the beacons of resistance during South Africa's destructive Zupta era, they're sure to be surprised by how much extraordinary courage was displayed by seemingly ordinary people. Adrian Lackey is one of the most obvious examples. Our paths first crossed more than a dozen years ago when South Africa's tax collection agency, SARS... Was in combat with serial entrepreneur Dave King, the one time billionaire tax fugitive who disputed that he owed anything but eventually made a record 706 million rand settlement. At the time, lake was the SARS communications manager. Judging by our interaction, he was deeply trusted by National Commissioner Pravin Gordon, who has gone on to play a key role at the very highest level in South African governance including a stint as Minister of Finance and his current position as Head of State Enterprises. As you'll hear in what follows, like his former boss, Lackey's integrity caused him to be put through the mill by the forces of darkness who at one point seemed to have complete control over the important levers of the South African state. Last week, Lackey's three-year legal fight with the now suspended SARS Commissioner Tom Moyani finally ended when a 12 million rand lawsuit was withdrawn let him summarize
1: i am the former spokesperson for sars i resigned i then wrote to parliament to explain to them that since Muyane took office um, these following actions by him is creating great instability at the revenue service and it will ultimately lead to a loss of critical skills and potential revenue shortfalls, which will pose specific risks to our fiscus. Um, all of this was, of course, based on Moyani's actions when he became commissioner in September 2014 of suspending his entire executive committee. He instituted a number of suspensions against people based on allegations that they punted through the Sunday Times of uh, illegal, covert, an uh, unlawful rogue unit at SARS that spies on taxpayers that committed a great number of offenses. And some of us who started to challenge that became increasingly the victims of bullying. We were muzzled and ultimately worked out of the institution. He also by that time suspended the deputy commissioner, Mr. Ivan Pillay, who has a long and distinguished record of building SARS uh, being part of the management team that built SARS into a model revenue and, uh, and customs administration that r- was respected in this country and globally. And what we've seen by 2018 was the systematic destruction of SARS. There's really no other way to put it, where it leaves the country with diminishing levels of tax compliance, with revenue shortfalls year on year, And it now is a problem that the Fiscus and the Minister of Finance are confronted with. So I'm very happy that at least the litigation against me has been withdrawn. But I think as a country, we are still dealing with the aftermaths of that very destructive reign of Muyani Mm -hmm. at SARS.
0: Nicely pulled together and an apt taster for his story. Lacay joined the SARS communication department in 2003 and worked his way up, becoming its official spokesman a few years later. After leaving the institution in 2015, he turned whistleblower. Moyani then lashed back by charging that Lackey had broken an oath of secrecy.
1: Um, it was a standard procedural thing that all employees um, sign an oath of secrecy where you commit to Protecting taxpayer confidentiality, which is a legal requirement, and that you will be sensitive uh, with SARS criti- or sensitive uh, SARS information, that should be kept confidential as well.
0: That's, that's quite an interesting and a very powerful document given that it's also law. So, Moyani came in in uh, 20, September 2014. Five months later, you decided to resign. What happened in those five months that caused you? After being at the institution, if you just said you were very proud of, for a dozen years, to decide to leave.
1: I think with me, for me, and for many other people, the, the work conditions basically became unbearable. Um, from October 2014, less than a month in the job, these headlines started running in the Sunday Times of a rogue unit that did all number of things, and the reporting by that newspaper are. Uh, was based primarily on leaked confidential SARS information, on leaked um, confidential taxpayer information, and it was very clear to many of us it can only come from within the institution. So a very specific, what I call a disinformation campaign was designed and given effect uh, with cooperation uh, from people within SARS. And when some of us stood up and said to Moyane, look, this is wrong, we need to investigate what is happening here, very specific actions were taken to either threaten people, suspend people, remove their duties, uh, as was the case for me, in that I could no longer engage the media and do my job as a spokesperson. Because for years we've denied uh, these allegations, we've denied any impropriety. In my view, SARS was a transparent institution, and that its work was commendable, um, in both in revenue collection and also in investigations into taxpayers, including criminal investigations into syndicates and into organized crime. And the allegations in the Sunday Times was were basically used as a basis to act against people. For me, I could see wrongs being done. I could see that good people and their reputation, specifically in the form of Mr. Ivan Pillay, the Deputy Commissioner, Mr. Pete Richer was an ex-co-member of SARS and others, they were being harmed, they were being silenced, they were being hounded out to the extent that some of them still face criminal charges four years later. And in that period also, the Chief Operating Officer, Mr. Barry Hall, resigned, many people under him resigned, and within them, that, that last segment, very critical skills of the SARS business systems and operations resided. And it became apparent that the institution was in trouble, but that the attempts to destabilize it were very determined attempts by uh, the new commissioner, Mr. Moyani. And because of those factors, I, I couldn't stay there any longer. I was not going to be part of the efforts to destroy the institution and people who have worked there for many years whom I know to be committed, honest, hardworking civil servants.
0: If you just remove yourself from the situation, you look at it from outside, here you have a new chief executive, here you have the head of communications or the spokesman of of the organization. There's negative publicity in a big newspaper. Surely the first question would be from the the new chief to say to the head of communications, hey, what's going on here? Why are you not engaging these people? Why aren't you getting them to at least get our side of the story? Was there ever that kind of interaction with you and Mayani?
1: Um, look, our best attempts. We, we, we worked with an external law firm who was appointed um, basically to, to present him with facts and historical records of what really was going on. He refused to listen to any of us. When Mr. Pillay challenged findings made against him about a rogue unit by a panel of investigation, Moyani refused to read, study, hear, consider any of those representations. So it became clear that some people wanted this rogue unit story to stick. They wanted to give it credibility because that is the basis on which they could proceed to get rid of people. And that, for me, was the ultimate aim. So he wouldn't listen to advice. He wouldn't listen to information or any historical records of what SARS was, how various investigation units were established, what they did, who was in charge of them. He wouldn't consider any of those representations. And then he acted with impunity to instill fear and, like I said, to get rid of people and literally to hound them out to the extent that their reputations are damaged and they would never find work anywhere else again.
0: So you resigned then in uh, February 2015. You left the organization after your month's notice in March 2015 and a few days later presented a a document to Parliament, to two uh, standing committees at Parliament. What, What motivated you to go there rather than to go, say, to the media?
1: Parliamentary committees fulfill an oversight function uh, as part of the substructures of our legislature. They have to look at state institutions and the conduct of state institutions. And for me, that was the most appropriate place to exercise my democratic right to petition parliament. And I put before them, to the best of my ability, facts. I said to them, wrong things are happening. I presented the risks to them that may follow. I said to them that since Moyani was appointed, the following actions have been taken and I can foresee problems in future. I, I advise to the committees, if you don't believe me, here's a list of people you can call to appear before you and to give their own evidence. So it was really a SOS and a cry for help and some intervention by two committees who I believe had oversight over the institution. Unfortunately, the response was they refused to consider or to deal with the substance or the merits of what I had put before them. Finance refused that my letter be tabled and discussed by other MPs. And ultimately, Dr. Dion George, who a former member of the DA on the Standing Committee of Finance, he obtained a copy of the letter and published it in the media. Uh, based on that, of course, Moyani and Sars reacted and instituted the civil claims against me.
0: Interesting reading through that document. That Moyani himself uh, wanted two million from you, uh, whereas he, mm. the claim was from Sars was for ten million. Now, why personally was there some something that that perhaps went down between the two of you?
1: No, nothing that I can recall. Um, I think it was just a very vindictive um, attempt uh, to intimidate and silence you through litigation. There's this big, powerful institution who can afford any lawyers and advocates that they want to put on brief, uh, really to intimidate me and to say you must withdraw this and otherwise we will sue you. The amount itself, any lawyer will tell you, is absolutely exorbitant. There's been no claim to that effect ever um, agreed to by a court of law in this country. So it was one, seeking to s- intimidate, uh, secondly, to cause financial ruin to to someone like me, um, and to basically silence any opposing view or voice um, that said, what you guys are doing is wrong and I don't agree with it. I think that was the strategy. Um, and I don't know why he took the action in his personal capacity. It's still baffling to me to this day. Um, but luckily, I was supported by a wonderful legal team uh, in at, at the law firm Weber Wenzel. Also, the Legal Resources Center assisted me to get proper legal representation. And we could go to court in 2016 to argue the matter. Um, but it's been... Yeah, a confusing me- uh, legal strategy on the part of SARS and Moyane because he's suing in his personal capacity using lawyers um, that SARS uses. So in other words, the taxpayer funds his, his, his claim.
0: It's also based on the document or the oath that you signed in 2010. What did your legal team make of that?
1: Look, that was part of the claim, but I don't believe it has substance. I don't think I put before Parliament anything that violates taxpayer confidentiality. Um, I put before the committees information that was in the public domain. I believe it was my democratic right to do so, to approach Parliament as a citizen and a taxpayer in this democracy. And I believe there's a strong element of public interest. Um, in this this whole um, legal defense that we argued before court because clearly actions by a public institution against many people uh, are deemed to be wrong, uh, possibly unlawful, and I mean, I couldn't keep quiet. So I exercised that right. I don't believe I violated taxpayer confidentiality, and I don't think any court will have uh, found against me in that regard.
0: So it was more a question of uh, shutting you up by keeping you busy with the lawyers. How did you afford to go to court?
1: Well, I couldn't. (laughs) Um, The Legal Resources Center helped. Um, Weber Wenzel was very accommodating uh, with their legal team. And also the advocate, Max Duplessis, took the matter. Um, I, I, I could in no way afford to defend myself against this, but I wasn't going to keep quiet. So other civil society organizations came on as well, Freedom on the Law, Alan Suzman, Ahmed Katrada, and they lent their support in various ways to uh, legal defense. Um, but it was really through the law firm and the advocate being really accommodating um, in representing me that enabled me to defend myself before court. But there's no way I could have afforded myself.
0: Abuse of the system wasn't restricted to the court of law. It was also deployed by the Zuma Associates in the Court of Public Opinion through one of South Africa's biggest-selling newspapers, the Sunday Times. I asked Leke why he, a skilled spokesman whose stock in trade is engaging with the media, wasn't able to get the newspaper to realize that it was being played for a patsy.
1: Firstly, they wouldn't listen. There was a group of three or four of them who were so convinced by the information in their possession, that it's factual. We try to explain to them what you are reporting is wrong. You are being misled. Information is being put to you in a manner that is selective and untruthful. And they wouldn't listen. So attitudes hardened very quickly to the point of almost a complete breakdown. In December 2015, they were challenged before the Ombud by Minister Gordon and by Ivan Pele and Johan van Lochremberg. and the newspaper lost spectacularly. They then proceeded to engage us, and in April 2016, they issued an apology, to an extent retracted the articles, admitted to serious flaws in the editorial processes, and so on. And in turn, the affected parties, Pele and van Logenberg, um, said we won't consider further litigation against them, because by that time in 2015-16, all of us were effectively unemployed. If you want to sue for defamation, you have to take on a big newspaper and media group, which we don't have money for. So it was really to keep public support growing, to keep civil society asking pertinent questions and to to try and keep people accountable in that way. So outside of the courts, because that wasn't really a route any of us could afford. Um, If you've been a victim of 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 such a campaign, it's difficult to get a form of justice in court. Uh, you would also know that Mr. Pille and Van Lohrenberg, they still face criminal charges. So our priority really is, you know, get, get um, money for the legal defense, get proper representation because you have to defend them against these charges, which can just drag on and on and becomes very expensive also. So I think the Sunday Times also suffered damage to their own reputation and I don't know at what point either the newspaper or the journalists who work there would step forward and say we want to account, we did wrong and we apologize. I don't know if that will happen. Um, I think it should happen, but there's very little we can do to seek a form of justification beyond what has happened until now.
0: What about reinstatement itselfs?
1: Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think where the institution is now and the pressures it is under to collect revenue, they definitely need someone like Ivan Pillay back to get them out of this hole, to build public trust, to build the capability of the insti- of the institution. They need Johan van Lochberg back. Johan is a dear friend, but he's an absolute professional colleague he is a dedicated investigator. He was passionate about his work, as was Mr. Pillay. And then many other people have left until now. I don't think I'll go back to SARS in its current form or state. I think they do need a lot of the past expertise that have left. But it's, it's, I don't know how they will recover from where they are right now.
0: In December 2017, 4,500 ANC members got together at an elective conference to vote for their new president. 2,440 of them opted for Cyril Ramposa to become its, and thus South Africa's, new leader. That gave him a margin of just 179 votes over then-President Jacob Zuma's preferred candidate, his ex-wife. In percentage terms... A 54 to 46 margin. The victory was only secured through the last minute switch by now Deputy President David Mabuza, who was actually standing on the Zuma ticket. Given what is now emerging, Adrian Lacay is only one of many South Africans grateful for that result, no matter how controversially achieved. This has been the Rational Perspective. Until the next time, Cheerio!